What's up, everyone? Welcome to the first episode of Taylor Talks Boxing, a new boxing podcast hosted by me, Taylor Higgins, uh, as part of the Fight Sites Combat Sports Network. So I'm going to kick this off straight away, right? I uh, I put out on Twitter, my Twitter's at Taylor on Sport, uh, ask a few questions for my first episode. And I was absolutely overwhelmed with the amount of replies I got. Got loads of really great questions. Um, and I'm not going to be able to address all of them straight away in this first episode. So I'm looking for this podcast to be quite brief, accessible, you know, not too long. So the kind of one you can listen to on your way to work or whatever, or on your way home, just chilling out. So what I've done is I've filtered down the questions that have come in this week uh, to focus generally on a lot of the questions were kind of amateur centric, focusing on amateur boxing. So if your question isn't featured today, don't worry, I haven't forgotten about you. And I have written down all the other questions that I was unable to answer in this episode. But don't worry, I'll make sure to come back to the questions in a later episode. So I'm going to kick this straight off, uh, done with all the introduction stuff and and get to answering some of these questions because we've got some really fantastic questions uh, that I'm going to go into a fair bit of detail in with some of them. So the first question we got was from Miguel, uh, one of our patrons at the fight site uh, who's on our Discord and Tommy Roosh uh, at Kemlin Kid on Twitter. And I'm going to combine these two questions together because they're both broadly very similar. So the question was, what fights are you looking forward to in 2021, both pro and amateur? And Tommy's question was along that line, what fights would you want to see? So obviously we're only in January right now um, and there's not too many announced, but the ones that immediately caught my eye is Chocolatito versus Estrada 2, the rematch, the long-awaited rematch. Um, a couple of years later than perhaps some of us would have hoped, but, you know, we're lucky to have had one fight already. And they're both still very much elite fighters, even if they're both getting on a bit in years. So I'm super excited to see that one. Um, I'm sure closer to the time, I'll, uh, I'll focus one of my episodes on that particular fight, break it down, see what both guys are doing, um, how it's gonna, whether it's going to go the same way as it did when they fought the first time. And, uh, yeah, no, that's, that's probably one of my most anticipated fights, um, if not my most on the calendar right now. As well as that one, we've got Bektamir, Bekbuli, Melikusiev against Sergei Kovalev in what feels like a passing of the torch kind of fight. Um, you know, old guard gets run down by young uh, young buck, if you'll, uh, if you'll take that comparison. Me, I like uh, Melikusiev. I'm, uh, I'm quite close with his camp. His manager, Aliko, is a wonderful guy. I've talked talk to his coaches. And I think he's a very special talent. Um, I haven't actually released this, but I'll mention it on the podcast just because it's quite interesting. Um, Beck originally started boxing, uh, I think he was about 12 or 13, um, but his, his uncle, who's a karate teacher, taught him. Where he lived, uh, the province, I think it's Fergana, it's called, something like that. Um, there wasn't a boxing gym. So the first year, his uncle taught him in a field. And a year later, he managed to win the national championships. And it wasn't long before he won gold at the Youth Olympics. So he really was just a phenomenal talent. Um, someone who hadn't stepped foot in a boxing gym 
and was already winning Uzbek nationals, which is incredibly, incredibly competitive. Um, and he's been through a lot in his uh, amateur career. He's had setbacks with injury, surgery and whatnot. But he's a young guy. Um, don't quote me on this, but I believe as of now he's 24. Whereas Kovalev is obviously a former pound for pound standout. But, you know, he's seen better days. He's very much at the tail end of his career. And it's a weird fight to take for Kovalev. It really is. Um, against a guy who is 6-0 and and, you know, very dangerous like Melikusiev is. Um, it's a strange one. But for me, this has the kind of passing of the torch uh, written all over it. Um, I think Kovalev is shop-worn. I think he's passed it. And Beck is just a pretty awful stylistic matchup for him. Um, you know, very powerful, good body puncher, strong, sturdy. Um, the body punching in particular, we've seen Kovalev susceptible to that already um so i suppose i'll talk about it in more detail at a later point but right now i i think you can probably guess which way i think that one's going to go but it's a really good fight um and i'm slightly disappointed with the bookies um because i was going to put some money on it have a bet but so far um i thought it was going to be more skewed towards kovalev uh, and the bookies it seemed like the kind of fight where the bookies would get it wrong uh you know and they they put a good amount on Kovalev, but someone's been uh, someone's been reading my tweets. Someone's been doing their homework, and they um, they've got it a lot more even than I'd have hoped. But hopefully, the betting line changes a little bit. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. So there are some other fights that I would like to see next year. Um, they haven't been confirmed this year even. Um, they haven't been confirmed yet, but I'm uh, I'm very keen on seeing them. I think the main one I want to see, um, and I'm, I'm I'm sure you're not surprised by this, but we all want to see Spence versus Crawford, right? But I'm not going to go around in circles talking about how much I want to see that fight. You've heard it all before. You know how much everyone wants this fight. If it gets made, it gets made. Um, but I certainly haven't got my hopes up, that's for sure. As well as that, uh, Tyson Fury versus Anthony Joshua. I think that's the one that for the heavyweights at least and you know a couple of a couple of people are like oh i'd rather see joshua wilder or whatever or Uzik get a title shot but fury joshua is huge especially over here so i'm uh i'm in england at the minute and the reception for that fight and the hype it would generate would be absolutely massive and it's a really it, you know i don't necessarily think it's the most competitive fight but it is huge arguably the biggest british unification there's ever been the biggest domestic british showdown there's ever been um we've been waiting for this one for a long time and i'd really like to see them two share a ring as well as that there's a couple more that uh that i'm particularly interested in i'll just quickly have a sip of my coffee one sec there's a yeah so there's a couple more um i'd really like to see golovkin against jamal charlo I think it's a really tough fight for Golovkin at this point in his career. But um, it's one I've been calling for for the last couple of years. I actually, back in 2016, I was very keen on Golovkin-Charlo. Um, more so than Golovkin-Canelo, because it seemed like Canelo was just, you know, dicking him around at the time. And Golovkin's always said, oh, I want the belts, I want the belts. So, and, but then he's gone off in his little tour where he's just been chasing the money in the Canelo fight. Um and back then, Golovkin-Charlo would have been really interesting. I think 
it's it's you know even more so now with Charlo on the ascendancy, right in his prime, and Golovkin has slipped. Uh, you know he's not one of the best pound for pound fighters in the world anymore. Um, and it's a tough fight for him. It certainly is. Charlo's big. He's powerful. He's a good boxer puncher. I was impressed with his performance against Durevianchenko. He did better against Sergey than Golovkin did. <coughs> Excuse me. And I still think it's a really good fight. And I think Charlo would be willing to trade bombs in the pocket with Golovkin. He's iron-chinned as well. I mean, it's difficult to compare Golovkin's chin with anyone, really. You know, um, We've seen him take some absolute bombs on the nose. Like it's nothing. But I think it would make for a really fun fight. Um, I mean, there's still Golovkin Andrade, uh, Demetrius Andrade, Andrade, um, which, you know, is an okay fight and stuff. I think it's a, a decent unification and a good uh, a good name for Golovkin to have on his resume, you know, help pad it out a little bit. But the one I want to see is Golovkin Charlo. As well as that, I want to see Lomachenko take on Tiafimo Lopez again. Oh, of course, I've got hiccups when I'm doing my first podcast. <laughs> um, now, this is probably a bit of a weird one because you're probably thinking, oh, why don't you want like Lopez Haney or something like that? I am a self-professed Lomachenko fan. I always have been. Um, and of course, I want to see him get the opportunity to avenge that defeat. Um, I think it has the makings of a really interesting fight. Uh, seeing what adjustments Lomachenko will come in with. Um and whether he'd be willing to take risks because he was very much shaken up by the power of Lopez. Um, tasted that power and became very tentative very early. Does he have it in him to be great? Put himself through the fire like Chocolatito did in the first fight against Sorong Visay. You know, Chocolatito, much like Lomachenko, um, the way they do it is different, but they're both pressure fighters, ultimately. And... When faced with a bigger, stronger, harder-hitting man, Chocolatito ramped the volume up to 11 and gave it everything, left everything in the ring against Sorong Visay. And Lomachenko, for the first five or so rounds, was hesitant to throw, he didn't like what was coming back, and he didn't grit his teeth, bite down on his gum shield, and go for it. And I've seen some people say, oh, he'd have probably just got knocked out, but he had to dare to be great and risk it all, like Chocolatito did. I think he's got a real good chance of winning a rematch. And that's why I'd love to see it. Because would it go like Chocolito Sorong Visay 2, where Lomachenko is just completely nervous, lost his confidence about the power of Lopez, and it ends emphatically? Will it be another win for Lopez? Or will Lomachenko be able to get the, his biggest win today against a really difficult opponent, a, a tough stylistic matchup for him? So yeah, I'd love to see that one. Um, as well, I would really love to see Jerron Ennis, Boots Ennis, in a fight against a top 10 opponent. I'd love to see him in there with someone like your Dennis Ugas, um, even Sergey Lipinets. Just someone who, I want to see him step up. I think he's the goods. Anyone who reads my tweets knows what I think of Ennis. I think he's a, the, the best prospect in boxing bar none. He's an incredibly talented fighter. And I want him to just step up and get in the mix at 147. By the end of the year, I want him to have established himself. So one of my big must-watch fights of 2021 is Jerron Ennis against any of the top 10. 
just just to get him up there and hopefully we can start talking about him in a year two years or so with the likes of Crawford or Spence he's obviously very young so there's no rush but uh, his last fight against Chris Van Hayden which obviously ended very early with a, uh, a headbutt was it or a cut something like that um, I just want to get the momentum going for his career so amateur fights as well came under this question and there's a couple obviously with the amateurs it's difficult um, because it's not the same way as like professional boxing where they're scheduled um, you know tournaments could ruin it someone could get upset early guys might be on the other side of a draw or whatever but here's a couple that I'd love to see. So um, my must-watch one, I've got, well, must-watch two, is Vasily Levit of Kazakhstan, who was a heavyweight silver medalist back in 2016, but should have been a gold medalist. If anyone watches that fight, um, Levit got like robbed blind. It's one of the worst robberies I've seen since Jones got robbed in South Korea. Um, and Levitt's a really good fighter. He took bronze at the World Championships last year, but he was robbed in the semi again. Um, he's incredibly unlucky, constantly on the losing end of uh, terrible decisions. Against Julio Cesar La Cruz of Cuba. Now, La Cruz is probably the best amateur of the decade. Uh, he's one of the greatest amateurs of all time, for my money. Uh, and he's reigned over light heavyweight for the best part of the decade. Um, he took gold in Rio 2016. Came just short last year, took bronze in the 2019 World Championships. But this is his move up to heavyweight. Now, if you guys have watched La Cruz, he's a magician. Um, his style's not for everyone, but he's very slick, very elusive, hands down. Um, lots of upper body movement, kind of reflexes. Uh, not particularly high output, but, you know, he just makes guys look silly with how, how much they miss against him. Uh, he really is untouchable a lot of the time, and he is a very, very gifted fighter. But now he's in the land of the giants at heavyweight against guys bigger than he's used to. Um, against guys like Vasily Levit, Muslim Gadjimagomedov. Um, and I think Levit La Cruz is a really great fight. Levit is big, strong, he's physically very fit, he's a very solid boxer, um, he's good at applying pressure, and I think. Stylistically, it makes a really interesting matchup for La Cruz, who, who's getting older now. He's one of the grand old men of the Cuban boxing team. Um, not quite as slick and fast as he was four years ago, five years ago. Um, and I think it's, yeah, that's probably the most interesting one for me, along with Andy Cruz of Cuba against Keyshawn Davis, the American prodigy, um, which looks... Like, we will probably see that one. Uh, I would be very surprised if we did not see them two uh, square off in Tokyo this year. Um, as well as that, we've got some interesting ones at middleweight, which is a really fun division. Uh, we've got Alexander Kizniak, who is the, in my opinion, the favourite for middleweight gold. Um, pressure fighter, high volume, never stops throwing, come forward, built like a tank. Um, and he's always in... Very entertaining fights, and there's a couple in particular that I think would be interesting. Kizniak against Yumir Martial, the Filipino middleweight who took silver at the World Championships in 2019. Um, Martial was good fun. He's 
quick, he's fast, he blitzes in the combinations, um, and he's a he's an enjoyable fighter to watch. I don't think I've actually seen him in a boring fight. I can remember even in the prelims of the 2019 Worlds, um, I really really enjoyed watching him. Um, he's he's catchable. You can catch him coming in, but um, Kizniak against Martial would be a fun fight. And they've actually fought before, um, but Martial got disqualified. So a bit of an unsatisfying ending of what was shaping up to be a really good fight. Um, as well as that, we've got Zoyrov, Shakhobodin Zoyrov, uh, the flyweight gold medalist in Rio, potentially squaring off against Amit Pangal of India in a rematch of the World Championship final at flyweight. Um, this one should be good. It was a close fight, not much in it. And Amit is really coming along he's built up quite a reputation in india and a, and a big following um so that's one to watch out for as well so i hope that answered the first question and i'm going to be moving on to um a question by christian underscore 659 on twitter uh, which was favorite amateur boxers so i'm going to split this up to a couple all time and then uh, a few current so all time uh, to the surprise of absolutely no one, my favourite amateur boxer of all time is Vasily Lomachenko. Uh, alongside Lomachenko is Angel Espinosa of Cuba. Uh, I've actually written an article about him uh, for the fight site. So check that out if, uh, if you have time. It's called The Lost Jewels of Cuban Boxing. Uh, as well as Espinosa, I talked about Angel Herrera as well in that Lost Jewels series. Um, he's also one of my favourites. Espinosa was a phenomenal talent. Um, like a lot of great boxing talents, it was wasted somewhat because um, he had problems with drinking. Um, bit of a womaniser. Wasn't particularly disciplined outside of the ring. Um, but he was an incredible talent. So fluid. Lovely to watch. Bouncing on his toes and Pound for pound, probably one of the top five hardest punches in amateur boxing history. Um, dude had absolute dynamite in his hands. Uh, Angel Herrera, another really good one. Um, had that really famous rivalry with Pernell Whitaker, where they fought five times. Officially, Sweet P won four. Um, and Herrera beat him in the 1982 World Championship final. Um, but I've watched all of the fights, and I had it 3-2 to, to Sweet P. I thought Herrera deserved the nod in one of their fights um but another really fun fighter um great tremendous work ethic smart boxer um and another one who's got good power so yeah there's uh, some of my favorites and also um i quite like a lot of the thai amateur boxers and there's been a few that in particular that i've always been a fan of so one is somluk kamsing um also known as somrak kamsing i believe who took the gold medal in the 1996 Olympic Games in Atlanta um, in a really stacked field as well. So you might remember the featherweight field in 1996 just because it featured a one Floyd Mayweather Jr. who was uh, controversially upset in the semi-final against uh, Bulgaria's Serafim Todorov. Kam Singh beat Todorov in the final. Um, and it's a shame, actually, that we never saw Cam Singh against Mayweather because I'm not necessarily sure that Mayweather would have won it. Um, everyone always talks about, oh, if Mayweather was robbed of a gold medal, or, like if he got to the final, he'd have won it all. 
But Cam Singh was a very, very good fighter. And even in that particular tournament, he'd, he'd had a really good run. Um, that was probably the most stacked featherweight field in amateur boxing history, the Olympics. Um, absolute shark tank of a division at the time. So really impressive from Cam Singh, who was also um, a Muay Thai legend, if, I, if I'm correct. Um, uh, and going off current amateur boxers, my favourite is Vasily Levitt. I talked about him briefly a minute uh, briefly a minute ago. Uh, he's a Kazakh who unfortunately keeps getting robbed. But he's really, really good fighter. Um, and uh, the thing I like about him is that he's the the, uh, the judges have flipped the bird to him so many times. Right, he's been screwed over countless times by the judges, and he keeps on coming back. He was humble in even when he lost in the the final of Rio 2016. The crowd were booing uh, Tischenko, the gold medalist, and Levitt was telling them not to boo, and he took it really graciously, despite you know being robbed absolutely blind. And he keeps on coming back. He's a veteran now, um, but I'd really like him to take gold in Tokyo. Um, I'm a big fan of Vasily Levitt. Uh, a couple of others at the minute, I um, I'd have to mention. Uh, obviously, quite a few people on Twitter know me for my association with Uzbek boxing. Um, and I'm a, I'm a big fan of Mirzizbek Mirzakalilov, the current world champion at featherweight, and Abdul Malik Kalakov, uh, who's a young man from Uzbekistan who hasn't competed in the Worlds yet, but is a youth Olympic champion and a youth world champion. Um, and he's got a very bright future. I stay in close contact with him, and uh, yeah, he's a great, great talent. As well as that... Um, I like Julio Cesar Le Cruz, who I mentioned as well, the light heavyweight magician, just because he's so good to watch. He's magnificent when he's on form. Um, and I definitely recommend checking out his highlights um, if you have time on YouTube. So I'm going to move on to the next question by at Boxing Journals, uh, which is best underground prospects. This is a tough one because what you define as underground is is difficult, you know? If, if this was, because I assume a lot of the people who are going to be listening to this are uh, a lot more hardcore fans rather than casual fans. Because most casual fans haven't heard of someone like, you know, Jaron Ennis or Israel Madrimov. Um, but I'm going to go proper underground, uh, some obscure prospects, and I'm going to start off with Agustin Gauto. Now, Gauto is, was originally uh, first discovered amongst my uh, my kind of friends and colleagues, by Kyle, uh, Kyle McLaughlin, who's the, our chief boxing writer. Kyle has been very keen on him from the start, and I completely agree. Um, Gauto looks the goods. Uh, I think it was Kyle, actually, who said, it might have been Lukash, um, who's another one of our writers, um, that Augustin Gauto is what most people think Virgil Ortiz is. Um, and Kyle made comparisons between Gauto and Canelo. Um, and I completely agree with that. I think he's a phenomenal talent. He's a light flyweight, Argentinian light flyweight, um, who definitely looks like he's going to be a real problem uh, at 108 in the near future. I'd really like to see him in the mix with guys like Kayaguchi, Kenshiro, Carlos Canizales. Um, in what is my favourite division in the sport, he looks like a real rising star. As well as that, we've got Junto Nakatani, or Junto, uh, Japanese fighter, 
and me and Lukash were both very keen on him from the start. I think Nakatani, um, to me, was the most impressive, most impressive out of the Japanese prospects I saw. Uh, there's another one, Genjiro Shigeoka, who I know a lot of guys are keen on, but Shigeoka is so small that you can't necessarily see him travelling through the weight classes. Um, he's he's absolutely tiny, even for a minimum weight. And he had some flaws. Like, he was clearly talented, but on the inside, he was very flappable. Um, he could kind of get start falling apart if uh, someone caught him on the inside, and he'll start flailing around. Um, but Nakatani, to me, has much better upside because he's very, very tall. I think he's about five foot seven. Uh, and has like a, I think it's like 68, 67 maybe inch uh, reach. And he's a flyweight. So that is, you know, he's very, very long. Um, pardon me. He's also very young. He's 23 years old, um, I do believe. Maybe 22, something like that. Um, and he won the WBO flyweight title uh, at the end of last year. Uh, I'm very keen on him. I think he's got a really good lead hand. He's got a good inside game. He's a good boxer at range. Um, and he's also, because of his size and his dimensions, he's got a lot of um, ability to translate and move up the weights. Don't be surprised to see him at Bantam before his career ends, even super Bantamweight. Um, so he's a flyweight at the minute, but I could very well see him becoming a freeweight world champion. Um maybe even you know four weights and, and really translating well up the weight classes i'm very keen on him he got a really good win uh, to win his world title against Guillermo magramo of the philippines um tko'd magramo in eight and also got an impressive win over an admittedly faded you know past his best milan melindo who was also a former champion um he's uh so yeah nakatani's got a lot of upside i like nakatani um as well as that, there's a young Japanese prospect called Hayato Sutsumi to watch out for. And my last one I would recommend is Artem Oganesian. Um, now, Oganesian's an interesting one because uh, he was originally introduced to me by um, Phil Rogers. Phil Rogers it was, I think. Um, but he's a, he's a very good fighter. He's Russian. Um, and he's at 154, which right now is probably only matched by 108 uh, as the best division in boxing. 154 has some crazy good prospects coming through. Um, it's really teeming with good prospects. And hopefully Artem can get in that mix. Um, he's managed by Eye of the Tiger. Um, so hopefully he gets some good promotional backing and they try and push him a bit. But he's young. Uh, he's a young guy, so... We'll, uh, I think he's only 21, so hopefully we'll see him in good fights soon. Um, yeah, I think those all qualify as somewhat underground. I'm not going to spend too much time going through underground prospects, mainly because uh, you know other questions to answer and whatnot. But I will also say uh, Tersin Bey Kulakmet, uh, a Kazakh who is also at 154, uh, super welterweight slash light middle or whatever. Uh, he's one to watch out for as well. He's uh, He's good. Now, this kind of links into that question, but best amateur prospects to watch out for when they turn pro. And this is by, uh, this, this question is from Judicar Lee. And there's a few really good ones who I'm excited to see in the pros. Um, 
First of all, I'm, I'm excited to see Abil Khan and Mankul of Kazakhstan. I think Mankul's got a really good pro-ready style. I can see him becoming a, a really good prospect. I mean, there's not really, other than like the occasional Lomachenko, um, there's not really a thing as a sure bet when you're transferring over from the amateurs to the pros. They are different sports after all. Um, so I'm not going to predict like major success for any of them because there's no one who I think is that transcendent a talent like Lomachenko was. Um, although I will say Keyshawn Davis, the American, when he turns over, he'll be a world champion. Um, he's very good, very talented young man. Uh, and I've always been very impressed with him. Um, he's uh, Keyshawn Davis is definitely one to watch out for. He's young. Uh, he's really proven himself with a lot of great wins in 2019, 2020. Um, and he'll be looking to secure gold in the Olympics, where he'll probably be facing off against Andy Cruz. Um, but I'm very excited to see his pro career. As well as uh, Amankal and uh, Keyshawn Davis, Pat McCormack is the best of the Brits, uh, alongside Peter McGrail. They're the two British guys to look out for. Pat McCormack hailing from Burtley in, um, in North East England. And Peter McGrail is another good fighter. Both of those guys will be looking for um, medals in Tokyo. Pat in particular, I've really liked Pat for a long while now. Um, he had a tough draw in Rio in 2016 and was pretty robbed. Uh, yeah, I'm hes always hesitant to use the word robbery, but I'll use it. He was robbed uh, in 2017 at the World Championships, deserved to get further than he did. Um, he lost to believe I'm correct here. Um, I always get some of these guys confused, but uh, Shakram Giesov, he lost to in 2017 World Championships. Um, and then he took silver at the World Championships in 2019. Um, yeah, and he's a, he's a really talented fighter. Um, more on him in a bit. He's actually comes up in another question, um, which I'll be answering. So those are my prospects to watch out for. Uh, also, shout out to Fitasan Pammot of Thailand, um, who looks, he's extremely young, but beat world champion and Olympic gold medalist Soirov um, at the Olympic qualifying tournament last year and looked good doing it. And he looks like he has a really pro-ready style. So another question I've got is from Kasim, and that is, why did the 2016 Great Britain squad perform so poorly? Now, this is a really interesting one because I don't necessarily think they did, uh, unless you have really unrealistic expectations. Um, I mean, let's start off here. Joe Joyce should have won gold, so he took silver, um, but should have won gold. He was robbed in the final against Tony Yoka of France in a really bad decision. Not quite Tischenko-Levitt bad, but bad. Like, it was a clear win for Joyce. Um, so that's one gold we should have had alongside Nicola Adams' gold. Um, and then moving on from that, I mean, the, you say performed so poorly in the in the question in particular, but I don't think we necessarily did. It's just a lot of the guys that our British boys fought were better than them. Um, you know, Galau Yafai um, lost a close one to the reigning world champion, uh, Joannis Argelagos. And Argelagos is a, a really talented young Cuban. Um, and there's no shame in losing to someone that good. I mean, he's the world champion. Um, and, you know, Galau was, was a talented young man. Um, 
upset the Cuban uh, Josvani Vetia in the 2019 World Championships. So he's talented, but I don't think anyone was necessarily thinking he'd beat the world champion. Um, he ran him close, but, you know, there's, I wouldn't say he performed poorly. There's no shame in that. Um, similarly, uh, Ashfak, uh, one of our boys, lost to Chachai Butti. Chachai is incredibly underrated Thai fighter. He's been screwed over a lot as well. Um, but I don't think there's any shame in losing to someone as good as Butti. Um, Muhammad Ali, uh, <laughs> which is one of the most ironic names ever for a boxer, uh, was certainly not able to live up to his namesake. He performed really poorly. I wasn't particularly keen on him anyway, to be honest. Um, he was disappointing, though. He, he crashed out quite early against a decent opponent, though, in, in Yolfino, uh, Venezuela. Um, Joe Cordina. Cordina did okay. So he won a European Championship gold the year before, but he came up against a tough opponent, uh, Tojabayev of Uzbekistan who ran the eventual gold medalist, uh, Robson Konsechow, close. Um, no, I wouldn't say Cordina was disappointing. You know, it's just, it is what it is. The guy was better. Um, now, Josh Kelly um, lost to Daniel Yelusinov, who eventually took gold. Um, and I don't think there's any shame in that. Yelusinov was too technically sound for Kelly. Um, didn't fall for Kelly's flashy tricks and whatnot. Um, and... Kelly wasn't ready for him. Um, Kelly lost to Mohamed Rabi of Morocco and Daniel Lusinov um, in the Olympics. And both guys were, you know, very solid fundamental fighters and stuff. Um, just too much too soon for Kelly, who was the best result he'd got to that point was European bronze. So it's no shame in losing to Lusinov. Um, Fowler. <laughs> uh, Anthony Fowler. Uh, he was a mess in his match against Alim Kanuli. Um, Janibek Alim Kanuli, the Kazakh, who Alim Kanuli himself was quite disappointing in that Olympics. Um, he fought a bad fight against uh, Shavansky in the quarters, I believe. Um, but yeah, no, he got completely dismantled. Fowler lost his head completely, just wasn't on that level. Lawrence Okoli, um He's another one. He's, he had a really tough draw against Erislandi Savon, um, who would go on to win, become world champion the following year. Savon also took bronze at the Olympics. Um, Savon had already knocked him out. Um, I think it was about two months prior. Um, and he gave a good account of himself. Akoli was outclassed, but his length gave Savon problems. Um, but that's another one where you just can't expect him to win, really. Um, you know, it would be an upset for Akoli to have won that. Um, and the last one I'll come to is, is Boatze, uh, Josh Boatze, who had an incredible Olympics, was super impressive, probably the most impressive, impressive British fighter at the Olympics. Um, he had a really, really impressive report, performance against Elshod Rasulov of Uzbekistan, dominated him for two rounds and finished him off in the final round. Um, but then he came up stuck, uh, Boatze, against Adilbek Nayamzad. Uh, Naya <laughs> this is going to be an interesting one. Adilbek Niazimbetov, Niazimbetov of Kazakhstan, um, who would eventually take silver. Uh, you know, just taught a bit of a lesson there and wasn't quite ready for Niazimbetov. Um, but Watsi held himself high. 
And since then, a few of those guys have gone on to do really well. I mean, Joe Joyce is going from strength to strength in the pros, just obviously coming off of that big win over Daniel Dubois. Uh, Joe Cordina, in a bit of limbo at the minute, sadly, but I really like Cordina. I think he's very talented. Um, Josh Kelly, not quite matched expectations that some have had for him. Uh, to be honest, my expectations were never that high for Kelly. Um, same with Fowler. Um, I mean, I don't even know if he's a boxer at this point. I think he's just a CBD salesman. Akoli, <laughs> um, obviously, say what you will about his style and stuff, um, but he's looked good and he's effective. That's the main thing. Um, he looked good in his last fight under Shane McGuigan, so hopefully we see a bit of a change in his style. But he's effective, um, and he'll be fighting Christoph Glowacki, the pole, um, for uh, one of the belts at Cruiserweight. Um, Boatsy, he's done okay. He's not quite as impressive as I thought he was going to be. Uh, I thought he was going to make a great pro, uh, and he hasn't quite panned out that well. Um, he's still kind of just dilly-dallying about, really, isn't he? He's not quite been moved um, all that fast, and there's been a few stutters and whatever, and a few performances where there have been question marks. But I, I like Boatsy. He hasn't quite panned out as good as I thought he would have done. Um, and then for Galau Yafai, uh, he'll be competing in Tokyo. And I don't think he'll win gold. He's in a really tough division, like flyweight. But he has the chance to medal um, and have a good run. If he if he can get a nice draw and stuff and get a few good results and stuff, he can definitely medal. Um, now, I'm going to go on to the last two questions because I've looked at the time and... We're approaching 40 minutes, so as I said, I want to make this accessible. So I'm going to um, go on to these last two questions, and then after that, I will uh, answer the rest next time. So we have a question from Dutch MMA Talk uh, about how much is an Olympic gold medal worth? This is an interesting one. So it's still very valuable in the sense that it's incredibly useful for promoters to use in order to market fighters. Um, a lot of the guys who are coming from Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan, uh, they're made a lot more marketable and promotable by the fact that they have a gold medal, for example. Um, and even guys who are not from there, like Anthony Joshua, do you think he would have got the same push and the same hype and traction around him if he didn't get that gold? I certainly don't. Um, it's certainly a very, very useful marketing tool. And it always has been, even back to the days of Sugar Ray Leonard, who was very much seen as... Uh, the media darling and the America's golden boy um, because of his gold medal win in Montreal in 1976. Uh, so for an amateur boxer, it is the most prestigious prize. Everyone covets it above everything else, more so than the world championship uh, gold. And the Olympics is the dream for amateur boxers, um, at least for the, the vast majority, um, that's for sure. And in a lot of countries, um, such as Cuba, Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan, it is very important because you have a lot of national pride there. Um, it's, it's very lucrative for their country, country and whatnot. Um, and it's about representing their people in a way that I think is, don't get me wrong, a lot of Western countries like the US or the UK are very proud to represent their, uh, their countries and whatnot. But in Cuba, for example, it's got such historical meaning as a way of like flipping the bird to America um, and showing that, you know, Cuba is great. Look at these great Cuban athletes. And there's a lot of pride there. And the there's a lot of 
um, it, it's very popular, more so amateur boxing is more so popular there uh, in terms of the fan base and audience. So there's a lot of acclaim and, you know, uh, some of the Uzbeks who have won the world championship and whatnot, they're treated like heroes um, back home. Whereas, you know, if uh, British fighter was to win a world championship, as like Frankie Gavin did, for example, you know, it's impressive, but it's not the same reception, you know? Um, and yeah, it's, it's very useful to just generally have as a marketing tool, because obviously a lot of people switch over um, and, and what have you and whatever. And they're, um, if they have a, an Olympic medal full stop, let alone a Olympic gold medal, which is, you know, really the top prize, um, it certainly helps with getting their name out there and being like visible. So I'd still say it's very important, but I mean, it's, like it's not essential, you know, um, like there's a reason why a lot of young Americans or Brits don't stay on for another Olympic cycle. They want to make money in the pros. Olympics isn't the be all and end all. They have their shot. Usually they'll fall short to some Cuban or whatnot. And it's not as big a deal for them as it is, for example, for the Cubans. Um, and they move on. Now, this is going to be the final question I'm answering for today. Uh, I will actually mention a few more that I'm going to be answering next time after this. But our last question is from Justin Donnelly. Uh, what is the process for appointing referees and judges for this year's Olympics? Great question. So... The International Olympic Committee have created the Boxing Task Force and this Boxing Task Force has contracted, uh, appointed PricewaterhouseCoopers, uh, PwC, uh, which you might be familiar with, in order to vet referees and judges. So what they do is they get a load of names from a uh, the AIBA database, a vetting process is carried out um, and then what happens is there'll be monitoring and online tests conducted by PwC. PricewaterhouseCoopers, um, and it's actually quite an interesting process. Um, they see what ones are compliant. There's the potential to suspend the judges if they don't like some of their decisions or whatnot. Um, and a quite a few of the Rio ones from Rio 2016 will be banned because there was a lot of dodgy decisions there. Um, and I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that this will potentially be a good Olympics for judging. I'm young mind and optimism is kind of, you know, a young person's thing. Um, but I'm sure I'll be disappointed. I hope I'm proven wrong, though. Um, I hope that we do actually get good judges, but I'm not um, I'm not banking on it. So if you actually want to read more about the appointment process of referees and judges, R and J, uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put a link in the description to the page where the international boxing task force actually explains this in greater detail uh, and it's, it's a good read i'd recommend reading it so i include that in the in the bio or the link or whatever so um one of the questions that did come up this week that i was going to answer was background before the olympics by joao balthazar um, and and favorites to win the olympics gold uh, by jim Carras. um I won't answer this this time because I don't want this to go over an hour, really. I want to try and make it yeah, as short and concise as possible. Uh, and I understand that I've waffled a bit here, but had quite a few to get through. But I am going to address that particular one straight away in the next podcast. Uh, we've also got some good questions about 
Javonta Davis against Ryan Garcia, the importance of an undefeated record, uh, best combinations, all kind of stuff like that. And they'll be covered next time. So I am going to work through every single question, guys. If you haven't been featured today, don't feel like uh, I've forgotten you. I certainly haven't. Um, but I hope you enjoyed this first podcast. I hope you found it informative. And uh, remember to follow me on Twitter at TaylorOnSport and fire away with questions if you have any. I'm happy to take any questions. And this will be a weekly podcast. So I'll be doing this every week, Taylor Talks Boxing. Um, make sure to check out the fight site www.thefight-site.com for latest articles and all updates and yeah hopefully next time I will be getting uh, a couple of guys on as guests Uh, we'll start off with like you know uh, staff of the fight site and then we'll branch out to other guests and whatnot Uh, if you do want to feature on the podcast as a a guest just uh, send me a message a dm on, on twitter So thank you so much for listening. Uh, I hope you're all safe. I hope you're all staying well. Remember to wear your mask. um, And yeah, I will see you guys next week. Thanks again. Uh, Bye.